Welcome to Biocentury This Week. I'm Associate Editor Stephen Hansen, filling in for Jeff Cranmer, and I'm joined by... Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Virginia Lee, Associate Editor. Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Biocentury This Week is brought to you by ICON, helping emerging biopharma meet their milestones to the market. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs, acting as a fully externalized project development team, starting in the preclinical phase to clinical research to real-world studies through to commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. On today's podcast, Virginia will discuss what we've seen on the startup scene in the past year. Simone will detail how vaccine developers are trying to stay ahead of the COVID-19 variants. And Steve will provide the latest news from Washington, including the latest on the COVID relief bill. Virginia, you had a great story the other week recapping some of the emerging biotechs we covered in 2020. What are some of the most interesting trends you saw among those startups? So we profiled nearly 120 new companies last year, and a lot of what we saw were startups working on next-generation versions of newer modalities like gene therapies and all types of cell therapies. What that looks like in the case of gene therapy is companies developing platforms to enable redosing, others that can carry larger payloads, and in general, companies trying to broaden the reach of gene therapy beyond monogenic rare diseases into larger indications like neurology and cardiovascular disease. In cell therapies, there's a whole new crop of companies developing next-gen natural killer cell therapies for cancer and regulatory T-cell therapies for autoimmune disease. These are both concepts that have been around for a while, but their first-generation counterparts were unmodified cells that were being delivered to patients. They haven't shown much efficacy in the clinic. They haven't really advanced as a result. But what we're seeing more of now in both cases are cell therapies that are being modified to increase their targeting ability, their potency, and their stability. There were a couple of companies that raised Series A rounds just last week that fall into these categories. So Insoma was one of them. It launched last week with $70 million, and they're using high-capacity adenoviral vectors to develop these off-the-shelf treatments. And their general goal is to broaden access to cell and gene therapies and make them more accessible to lower-income countries. Another example from last week is Quell Therapeutics based in the UK. So they didn't disclose a lot of details about their platform, but they're among this growing set of companies that are modifying regulatory T cells with chimeric antigen receptors for autoimmune disorders. We're expecting to see a lot more of these kinds of launches continuing into the new year. Virginia, what I'm hearing is that investors are still gung-ho on immuno-oncology. We've been covering the idea that targeted oncology is having a year but that's probably later in development and closer to approvals. What it sounds like is that there's just still a huge appetite for cell therapies, innovative cell therapies, which we know have actually a lot of challenges in the ways that you've talked about. It's interesting because a lot of the market access issues in areas like cell therapy are still being worked out, but a lot of people are working to drive ahead on the science side and really innovate. They're also trying to innovate on the manufacturing side and just make them easier to scale up. Yeah, it's interesting because we just saw today there was an announcement about Centessa, which is a new company being led by Monsef Slawi. Just on the finance side, there still is a ton of money pouring into these companies. Centessa raised $250 million. And it's a slightly different model. It's not one that we haven't seen before, but it's this subsidiary model with asset-centric subsidiaries that really the main goal they see here is to be able to try and drive these assets further and retain a lot more of the value. I think that's an interesting approach here to see 
really these asset centric companies, they on their own maybe can only go so far. I think the idea here is to really give them a lot more behind the scenes help such that you could push these sorts of companies all the way to the market. Stephen, as you say, it's not completely new to have this model. There have been a few. We're also seeing a few what I'm going to call aggregator companies emerge where people bring a whole bunch of different technologies. I think that was SANA was the most recent one of those. Do you think people are tinkering more with the NUCO model or is this just level of experimentation there that always exists with new company formations? There is some tinkering. I mean, this I think is maybe the next step in the evolution. If, if we're just thinking about the asset-centric model in particular, this seems to be the next logical step because, as I said, originally when this all started, the idea was to get these to a proof of concept or value inflection point and then look to sell them off. But an asset-centric company in and of itself, still a fairly high-risk opportunity that doesn't really look as attractive to the buy side in terms of looking at public markets. Whereas if you take a bunch of these and club them together, that really changes the risk profile for that opportunity. And I think we've seen that here. If you look at the names of the investors who invested in Centessa, it's basically 15 of the biggest blue chip life science investors there are. That just in and of itself speaks to the attractiveness of this idea. Whether we're going to see more of this, I don't know. I mean, PureTech Health and BridgeBio were the two prime examples of this first. BridgeBio is now an $8 billion company and doing fairly well. It can work. Tell us one more thing, Stephen, about Monsef Slawi's role in this new company. He's operating as CSO. Obviously, he's still a partner at Medici. These are all Medici-founded companies. They're all majority owned by Medici, and now he's stepping in that role as CSO. In speaking to him yesterday, he said this is really where his primary focus is going to be going forward. He talked a bit about how back at GSK, he had tried to do something like this, where he tried to separate out the R&D into much smaller units to be able to be more agile and be more efficient, but that the existing structures of pharma, you know, the infrastructure that's in place, didn't really allow him to push the model as far as he maybe had wanted. And so said that this is another opportunity to do that. Simone, if we could move on to something that is one of the most talked about issues facing vaccine developers and really society today, that's the COVID variants. Simone, how are companies looking to stay ahead of the curve here? If 2020 was really all about vaccines in record time and maybe even mRNA vaccines this year, at least the, the foreseeable part of this year, it's really all about genomic surveillance and variants. And I think it's important not only for COVID-19, but I think a lot of what goes on may actually lay the groundwork for drug development writ large in the future. The UK is way ahead on this. And the reason that the UK is way ahead on this is that they have been building infrastructure for genomic surveillance in a big way even before the pandemic. What you really want to do is detect variants before they become dominant. Everybody has heard by now about the variant that was first detected in the UK, another one in South Africa, there's a few that are arising. The, the issue here is, is twofold. First, companies that already have vaccines will need to pivot. They are going to need to either create updated versions of their vaccines, and we've been covering this. On the other hand, a new companies coming forward with new products and these include diagnostics, these include therapies, they include vaccines. 
they need to be able to be looking to the variants that are arising. And FDA guidance is expected in the coming weeks. Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock said at a briefing on Thursday that the need for product updates is going to hinge on two factors, the prevalence of the concerning variants and the degree to which they compromise the original product's efficacy. She hasn't specified a threshold for either of those parameters, though I would expect the guidance would. What can companies do and what are they doing? There's a range of in vitro assays that companies are doing and can do. And it's a little bit similar to what you do with bacteria when you're creating antibacterials, where you force the changes. You either take uh, pseudoviruses and you culture them in the presence of antibodies from vaccinated people, or you use something like site-directed mutagenesis or saturation mutagenesis. And so you're creating loads and loads of mutants, and then you test those, you map the residues that viruses can change to avoid antibody binding without losing the ability to bind the host receptor ACE2. This is what's going on. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It's a race. This year, it is a race to get enough people vaccinated before these variants take hold. Variants arise through replication of the virus and the fewer hosts there are for the virus to replicate in, the more you can slow that down. In parallel, you need to have diagnostics therapies and vaccines ahead of the curve. This is really important and genomic surveillance has never really been used in this grand scale way before and we've never really seen its importance. Steve can talk in a minute about what the US will be able to do, let's say, on this front with federal help. But doing it in a bit part way is going to be problematic. And the UK has the advantage of having set up a, a system for genomic surveillance across the country in a sort of centralized way. Can vaccine developers really do this in a predictive fashion? Can they actually move at risk in terms of developing and manufacturing a booster ahead of time? Or is this something where it is going to be consistently reactive? This approach attempts to do that ahead of time. What you're doing is in vitro, you are trying to detect the variants before they become prevalent. In some cases, what you might look for is a single mutation that appears in lots of different variants, even if they're not yet prevalent. That's one way where you might say, okay, that's an important mutation. Let's create a vaccine that takes into account that or a therapy. And in other cases, as I said, you pressure test it in the lab. You force all these mutations at different points along the sequence, and then you test them to see which ones might arise. Can you develop vaccines that far? That depends on how much money you have, how much you can do at risk. That is one of the big contributions of Operation Warp Speed in the first year of its existence was to enable manufacturing at risk, to take that risk away from companies who couldn't possibly have afforded to put all, all that effort into something at risk. We've seen a few large companies where they're, in fact, prominent vaccine developers, where their programs didn't go forward. So we're lucky that Pfizer's and Moderna's did. Sanofi's, Merck, those big players are either on hold or delayed or have not proceeding with their, their compounds. Yeah, I just wonder, is this a place where regulators can play a role in terms of trying to help? Because you can obviously foresee a scenario in which a company can develop and have multiple vaccines to hand that target different variants, but how do they make that decision to then actually move forward with manufacturing? Because as you said, even some of the largest companies 
could they manufacture six, eight, ten different variants at risk if only one of those is actually ever going to be potentially of use? You know, I'm wondering if there's a role for regulators here or WHO to help them make these determinations. Yeah, of course they will. There's going to be a big role for regulators. It's going to be like the flu where FDA, EMA, WHO, and other bodies are going to get together. They're going to survey the landscape and they're going to make recommendations to the companies about which variants to include in the booster shots or new vaccines. So Steve, obviously this is going to be one of the things that's on FDA's plates. Wondering what else is happening in Washington in terms of the COVID relief bill and the money that's being diverted towards FDA and some of the other institutions there? There's a lot of money in the COVID relief bill for FDA, for CDC, for NIH. I think there's $500 million for FDA and what they call zero-day money. That's money that's not going to be recurring. It's just for this one event. It's going to be used to facilitate the review and development and post-market surveillance of COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. FDA could also put some of the money toward advanced continuous manufacturing related to vaccines, to the conduct of inspections related to manufacturing vaccines and therapies and devices that were delayed or canceled for reasons related to COVID-19. I think that's going to be a key thing. And there's also money in there for CDC. There's $1.8 billion increase in CDC funding. That's going to include money to conduct the genomic sequencing of COVID-19 variants and a lot of other things. Also, in that vein, just in terms of awareness, we've got another adcom coming up for a vaccine. I think the next one is for the J&J vaccine. What are some of the thoughts we've had on that upcoming adcom? I've been very critical of the two advisory committee meetings that have been held so far about COVID-19 vaccines. I think that FDA has used them simply to get a thumbs up from the committee, a vote in favor, without having any substantive conversation or advice from the committee at all. In the first meeting, they didn't even allow committee members to explain why they voted the way that they did, and there was confusion about it. I hope that the advisory committee meeting for the J&J vaccine, which is coming up on February 26th, is going to be different. It should be different because the issues are really different now. It's much more complex. The questions for FDA and the public include things like, how should people think about a vaccine that has a somewhat lower overall effectiveness? FDA has got to use this opportunity, I think, to get solid scientific information out to the public so that they understand, for example, that the J&J vaccine is just about as good as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines at preventing what's really important, which is serious illness and hospitalization. In fact, it may be just as good as them because it was tested at a different time when there were different variants and different circumstances. In any case, it's an opportunity to get a lot of information out to the public in a serious way, and it needs to take that opportunity. I think there are other things that it could use this meeting for. It should talk about what the strategy for emerging variants is. For the J&J vaccine, it should talk about what the strategy is for testing two doses, because remember, this is a one-dose vaccine, but there's a possibility that there could be a booster dose. There's a possibility that the booster dose could be a different vaccine that should be tested. People are going to have questions about if they get the J&J vaccine, whether they'll be eligible to get a booster dose of a vaccine that's manufactured by a different company in the future. All those things are going to be really important, I think, to get out there and to get solid answers. Because if FDA and the advisory committee don't educate the public on these topics, other people are going to step into the vacuum. And these are people who have different agendas and have different levels of expertise. Yeah, I agree, Steve. 
with a couple of things in particular. First of all, the emphasis that how well a vaccine works. And to some degree, we were spoiled with the first ones. But efficacy isn't really just about preventing any symptoms. As you say, what's really important is preventing severe disease, hospitalizations, deaths. And there's not a lot to tell, actually, between the vaccines that have so far been authorized or approved or reached this stage. Persuading people and educating people, persuading is probably the wrong word, what they're looking at, I think, is going to be key. Do you have any comments about what the administration is rolling out? I haven't heard anything. They must be aware of this, and you would hope that they have got some messaging that's prepared for this. But I think that the advisory committee can play a unique role because they're not in the government. There are different stakeholders. There are academics, there are pediatricians, there are vaccine experts, there are people from physicians from the African-American community, people who can talk to different Americans in different ways and give them the information that they need to understand to make decisions about this vaccine. I, I think it's just so critical to have that. There is a lack of trust in government and different people hear messages differently when they come from different kinds of people. One of the real values of this advisory committee is that they do have a diverse set of experts there. They should make use of them to reach out to different people, different communities. Thanks, Steve. That's all we have time for. All of the podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.